Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, thanks for being here. My name is John Sabin, and I'm one of CCL's Great Lakes Regional Coordinators. I've also worked as a clinical social worker for over 30 years, and I learned about motivational interviewing in my work as a therapist. I'm calling this presentation Motivational Interviewing a Deeper Dive because I gave a 40-minute presentation on motivational interviewing just this past June. And today we have, you know, maybe up to two hours. So I'll be using some of the same material that I presented in June, but I'll also be adding some new material, taking us uh, hopefully deeper into an understanding of motivational interviewing. Okay. So we're going to start uh, today by talking about uh, the spirit of motivational interviewing. And then we'll move into the basic skills of motivational interviewing, including something called evoking change talk and then reflective listening. Finally, we'll do some practice using a live coaching format. That means I'll be asking some of you to volunteer to do some role plays while you are spotlighted for everyone else. I'll give you some feedback as you role play, and you'll also uh, be able to uh, get some feedback uh, as you go from me. I'd like you to start thinking now about having the courage to volunteer to do one of these role plays. Some of you are accustomed probably to uh, speaking in front of groups and you might feel more comfortable volunteering. And I'm going to need some of you folks who are more comfortable with that. But I also want to encourage those of you who are less comfortable stepping into the spotlight in front of a group. We need your voices too. And the magic really does happen outside your comfort zone. So let's talk a little bit about the cause of climate change. Of course, we're all here because we understand that human activity, particularly the burning of fossil fuels, is causing global warming and climate change. And what I want to say today is that I think there's a deeper cause. I think the deep cause of climate change is disconnection, our disconnection from each other and our disconnection from the natural world. Without that disconnection, maybe we would not have caused climate change in the first place. And I think we would certainly be solving it more quickly. So we have this slogan that democracy is the solution to climate change, but I think we could just as easily have this slogan, that the solution to climate change is connection. Because every connection helps to restore the web of life to a healthy state. And connection between humans and between humans and the natural world is an essential part, I think, of what we call a livable world. I'm saying this particularly because I know that we sometimes get so frustrated with our members of Congress when they don't seem willing to take the actions that we're lobbying for. And we might think that we are therefore not making progress. But I think that establishing a connection with a member of Congress or someone on their staff is an important part of progress. I think those connections actually are pieces of the world we are trying to create. So when you can establish a good relationship with a member of Congress or someone on their staff, you are succeeding. That connection itself is an important marker of success. Motivational interviewing is a way of approaching climate conversations so that we can form those connections while we work on promoting climate solutions. 
So are you all mostly aware of the En-ROADS uh, model? En-ROADS is a computer simulator that allows us to project the impact of various technologies and policies over time on global temperatures. And this is their basic dashboard. This summer, I had this great idea. First, I assembled a supercomputer in my home made of various objects I found in my kitchen. And then I used that to create my own climate solutions simulator. And I'm calling this M-ROADS because it tracks the impact of various emotional states on global temperatures over time. Here is the status quo, according to M-ROADS. We have high levels of anger, contempt, and ridicule. And as you can see, this is projected to raise global temperatures by a terrifying 3.3 degrees Celsius, that's six degrees Fahrenheit, by the end of the century. By the way, before I found CCL, I thought it was necessary if you wanted to be involved in politics to express high levels of these three emotions, anger, contempt, and ridicule. But CCL taught me this remarkable idea that politics could be conducted with respect, appreciation, and gratitude. So I asked M. Rhodes to, sh to show me what impact respect, appreciation, and gratitude could have on global temperatures over time. And the results were quite remarkable. M. Rhodes shows that high levels of respect, appreciation, and gratitude expressed globally would keep temperature rise below two degrees Celsius by the end of the century. I was impressed with this result, but I have to admit, I was a little disappointed that it didn't show we could keep the temperature rise below 1.5 degrees. So I thought I'd add one more element, carbon pricing. And my homemade machine made lots of weird noises and smoke came out of it and my smoke alarm went off, but then it finally registered a result. Respect, appreciation, and gratitude combined with the carbon price implemented globally could keep the temperature rise below 1.5 degrees Celsius. I thought this was so great. I thought CCL should turn it into a slogan for a t-shirt. Respect, appreciation, gratitude, and carbon pricing. Isn't that what we're all about? And yes, I have sent this to CCL's marketing team for their consideration. We often begin teaching motivational interviewing by talking about the spirit of motivational interviewing, or MI. But I'm afraid that there are so many acronyms in this traditional teaching style that it gets a little confusing. So we have this acronym, PACE, for partnership, acceptance, compassion, evocation. And this is good stuff, but I wondered if there might be a simpler way to teach this spirit, this basic attitude. And it occurred to me that CCL's one rule might provide a familiar way to talk about this. I understand that our one rule was written in the early days of CCL by Mark Reynolds. It's a rather amazing rule. And I wonder if we ever really stop to think about how profound this is. Offering respect, appreciation, and gratitude to everyone, to all people. I don't know what Mark was thinking, but this reminds me of various religious teachings like the notion of agape in Christianity, which is 
universal selfless love or the notion of universal compassion in Buddhism. This is a really deep concept. And I think we often don't give it the serious reflection it calls for. So I want to begin our workshop today, our deeper dive into motivational interviewing with a thought experiment. I'd like you to begin by calling to mind someone who has been a hero or a mentor or a good friend to you in the climate world. It might be someone who inspired you to become a climate activist or to join CCL. Think of a person that you are quite naturally and easily grateful to and respectful of. Someone in the world of climate activism who easily brings a smile to your face. And thinking of them, I'd like you to repeat these phrases to them mentally, silently, for the next 20 or 30 seconds, I respect you, I appreciate you, I am grateful to you. And now let's see what it's like to extend respect, appreciation, and gratitude to ourselves. This might seem unusual, but if we don't have respect, appreciation, and gratitude for ourselves, it's hard to imagine how we might genuinely offer these to anyone else. So thinking of yourself, thinking of ways that you have taken climate action or done other good things, other acts of kindness and generosity, let that come to mind. And thinking of yourself, try saying these three phrases to yourself silently, repeatedly, I respect you, I appreciate you, I am grateful to you. And now, I'd like you to think of someone you know who seems to stand on the sidelines of climate action. They might acknowledge the need for climate action, they might applaud your efforts, but they don't involve themselves for whatever reason. And thinking of this person on the sidelines and considering their good qualities, what you like about them, try saying these three phrases to them silently and repeatedly. I respect you, I appreciate you, I am grateful to you. And now here's the hard one. 
I'd like you to bring to mind someone who actively opposes or obstructs climate action. Think of someone specific if you can. Maybe it's a member of Congress or some other public figure, or maybe it's someone you know personally. And if you can't think of someone specific, you can imagine someone in general who thinks maybe the climate change is not real, or maybe they deliberately disseminate climate mis misinformation, or they speak out publicly about how harmful it would be to act on climate. And consider them not just as an opponent of climate action, consider them as a whole human being. Consider them as someone who once was a small child, a person who has grown up and suffered many injuries, as we all have, both physical and emotional. Consider that this person has suffered losses, as we all have, and that they are subject to illness, aging, and death, as we all are. You might also consider the ways that they might show kindness or generosity to other people in their daily lives. And as you consider them in this holistic way, try saying these three phrases to them silently and repeatedly. I respect you. I appreciate you. I am grateful to you. And now finally, please consider the entire web of life on this planet, the entire global ecosystem. Consider how we are all connected from the coral reefs to the rainforest, to the children playing in your neighborhood. Consider how even that which we call inanimate is a vital part of this web of life. Rocks, streams, sunlight, air, all of it wrapped up together, one living planet. And then say these three phrases to this whole web of life silently and repeatedly. I respect you. I appreciate you. I'm grateful to you. So I'd like to stop for a moment and just hear from a few of you what that exercise was like for you. You can raise your electronic hand uh, if you'd like to share a comment. It is almost impossible to remove the word deserve from the equation for me. And I can see how important this is. I have recently been um, 
getting into Buddhism. And I can see how important this is, but wow, it's hard to stop fighting. It is hard. It is really hard. Yep, it sure is. And and how does this not make us people to be walked over, people to be trampled in, in the rush toward the 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 dark side? <laughs> well, okay. I, I mean that's that's a concern. You know, maybe we'll get trampled if we're so respectful. Let's uh I don't have an answer to the question right now, but we'll keep going and we'll see if we come to an answer. Let me take the next next question or comment. Uh Josh. Yeah, I um, I also am involved a bit in Buddhism, and I I love the sort of mirroring of this with giving metta, which I think is, you know, this idea of may you be happy, may you be healthy, may you feel at ease, and sort of thinking about different people, cl people close to you, yourself, and then people who are more difficult. So it was a familiar exercise, but I really struggled with the person who's actively fighting climate change in a way that when I give meta, I don't struggle because like I can I can think of a politician, which is who came to my mind, um, and wish them well, like wish their like them that they be healthy and that they feel at ease. And partly I think it's because I I can imagine them then being a better person. But wishing that telling them that I respect them and appreciate them and I'm grateful to them was yeah. so hard. Yeah. And for, for those of you who don't know this, uh, this term metta, it means loving kindness. So that, that is a traditional Buddhist uh, practice. Yeah. Let's take a, let's take maybe three more comments. Alex. I thank you. Um, I had the same experience. I have a neighbor who's I can imagine that person as a young child and I can say, I respect you, I'm grateful to you, I appreciate you. But when I know them now as an adult, it's extremely difficult to feel compassion towards them because they're just so awful <laughs> and they have guns and they scare me. So, you know, this is, it's interesting, right? Because we say this is our one rule to treat all people this way. And then when we really reflect on it, then we find this is like really, really hard. <laughs> Yeah, let me take another another couple. Well, we got three people with their hands up. I'll take all three of those comments. Okay, Jim. Hi. Uh, so I struggled with the same person, of course, or category of person. Um, when I found myself saying, I respect you, I had to pause and then ask myself, hold it, did I just lie? And is that being disrespectful? <laughs> yeah. So I struggled with that. All right, thank you. Hey, Carl. Yeah, uh, great exercise. Thank you, John. Um, and I'm going to go out on a limb and guess I wasn't the only one that brought Trump to mind uh, for the third uh, person there. And something that I wanted to share is that when Trump got COVID, whenever that was, that was a long time ago, I, I had a thought at that time, which is, I don't want him to die in the hospital tonight. Like, you know, as much as I just abhorred everything he was doing and, and the outcomes, I, there was this momentary flash where I went, dying alone in the hospital tonight of COVID, that's not something I wish on him. And I realized in that moment that incredibly, I guess I still love him because he's a human being. And 
it sounds weird to say it, but that was kind of true for me in that moment. And, and so it's, uh, mm. it, yeah, it, and yet it's hard to process that feeling that I have because it goes against everything I think about him. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that, Carl. It's kind of beautiful, that kind of spontaneous compassion. And I, I do think this is something that we need to work on because this, you know, this is not so easy. Um, I'll I'll hear from. Let's take Lucy, and then maybe we should move on. I'm sorry about that, George I, and Karen. You got your hands up, but let's let's hear from Lucy, and then we should probably move on. Yeah, I think I chose wisely in the person that um, that I appreciated, even though they don't believe that that they are that they are a climate change denier. And I chose the husband of a really close friend of mine. And I had a difficult conversation with him about climate change, where I expressed that, um, I mean, he told me that he didn't think climate change was real. And I told him that um, I passionately wished that he was right and I was wrong. And that, unfortunately, I knew that I was not wrong. And we had an, a lengthy conversation. And at the end of it, I I really didn't move him towards believing um, or changing his way of thinking. But when I think of, and, I'm, and it made me sad because he lives out in Montana, I'm in Minnesota. And that was kind of the way we left it that morning over coffee. And I won't see him for a while. But anyway, I just wanted to say that I felt very sad after that conversation that I hadn't made a better connection with him about it. And I think having this reflection would be helpful if I had just done that over and over after I had this difficult conversation to promote healing of that relationship. And I do really still respect him and appreciate him and am grateful to him. Thank you, Lucy. I appreciate that. I'm sorry we couldn't get to all of your comments. Um, there will be more opportunities to, uh, to share. Let's see here. Uh, that screen looks okay. Okay, yeah. Let's uh, let's move along a little bit. Uh, and I want to just dive a little bit more deeply into motivational interviewing. Uh, motivational interviewing was developed in the early 1990s by two psychologists, William Miller and Stephen Rolnick as a counseling tool in the treatment of addiction. And since then, there's been research that validates its effectiveness uh, working with addiction, but also in a wide variety of other healthcare settings, such as diabetes management, uh, sticking to a medication regimen or other healthcare routine. Uh, before there was motivational interviewing, most counseling for addiction was confrontational and very directive and not that effective. In motivational interviewing, the counselor looks for their client's own motivations to become clean and sober and simply facilitates the client's own pathway towards sobriety. Um, I want to tell you, I just want to, uh, I want to tell you a brief story about how this might work, actually, and very few um, courses of therapy go like this, but this had happened for me once, and I think it's an interesting story. Um, this young guy came to see me. I think he was about 21 years old. He was living in his parents' house. He was not working, and he was spending his days playing video games and smoking pot. 
and um and he came to me not because uh not because he wanted to stop smoking pot that was not on his mind he came in and told me that his parents were driving him crazy because they were yelling at him all the time and so uh what i did was ask him what he wanted like how did he want the situation to change uh this 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 story unfolds over a period of maybe three months, by the way. So I'm, I am abbreviating, but it went pretty quickly. So he told me that what he wanted was to have his own place so his parents wouldn't be yelling at him all the time. And he pretty quickly realized that to get his own place, he needed to get a job. And then he realized that to get a job, he was going to have to go through drug screening. And then he realized he'd have to quit smoking pot for at least a month. He considered briefly getting buying some clean urine somewhere to fake a drug screen, but he abandoned that idea, stopped smoking pot for a month, passed a drug screen, got a job, and then he stopped coming to counseling because he had a job and he got his own place and he didn't need counseling anymore. He was too busy. So I don't know what became of him, but the interesting thing about the story is that I never talked to him about not smoking pot or not watching video games all day. I asked him what he wanted and that was to get his own place. And then I just helped him think about what he needed to do to accomplish that. And it led him at least temporarily to stop smoking pot. So that's kind of how motivational interviewing can go. Now in our climate work, our task is gonna to be to uncover other people's motivations for supporting climate solutions, and then guiding them and facilitating them towards implementing those solutions. One of the problems that MI can help us to avoid is the psychological defense mechanism called reactance. Reactance is a process of pushing back when we feel that someone is pushing us to do or think something. It's designed to protect our sense of autonomy and independence. If we trigger reactance in the other person, it can create what we might call a boomerang effect in which the other person feels more negatively towards climate action than they did when we started talking to them. We don't want that to happen. And so MI is a process that can help us to avoid that. One way we avoid triggering reactants is by inhibiting what we call the writing reflex. Now, if you see a sign like this CCL logo, your instinct might be to straighten it. We call that the writing reflex. In biology, the writing reflex is the body's tendency to come back to center if we're thrown off balance. In MI, it means that when we hear someone say something that to us is obviously incorrect, our instinct is to correct it, to straighten it. But in order to practice MI, we have to inhibit this writing reflex. Imagine that someone came into your house and they started straightening the photos hanging on your walls. How much worse would it be if they visited your mind and started straightening out the beliefs and ideas they believed were off kilter? In order to establish the kind of respectful, trusting relationship that has the best chance of influencing the other person, we must refrain from correcting what we perceive to be the, other's person, the other person's errors. We have to trust that they can and eventually will correct their own errors. It doesn't mean that we can never offer correcting information, but we have to do that in a particular way. And we need to watch for the knee-jerk tendency to correct the moment we hear someone say something that sounds wrong. So this is the kind of conversation we're trying to avoid. 
argument followed by counter argument, like punch followed by counter punch. This is a debate, a kind of verbal or mental fight, and we are unlikely to change the other person's mind. In fact, the other per person is probably just becoming more dug in to their original position. I've had many political arguments in my life. And even though I think I'm pretty good at framing my arguments, I can't think of a single time, not one single time, when the person I was arguing with said, actually, John, you're right. I will change my point of view because of what you said. That has never happened to me. In motivational interviewing, we use the term discord to describe what happens when the conversation goes off track. You can take one look at this photograph and sense the discord here. You can feel it in your conversations. So let your feelings be a guide. Where there is discord, there is a need to change directions. A climate conversation is not a zero-sum game. It's not about you winning an argument. If you win, remember, that means that the other person loses. And if they lose, it means you lose too. We all lose. We are aiming instead for a win-win. Think about that when you talk to others about climate. The primary strategic goal of motivational interviewing is to evoke change talk. In traditional MI work, this means any talk about the disadvantages of the status quo, the advantages of changing, the possibility of change, or the intention to change. Miller and Rolnick wrote that the starting point for understanding motivational interviewing is understanding that it is possible to communicate in a way that elicits change talk and thereby nudges a person towards change. For us in our work, it might be easier to talk about evoking solutions talk. We could define solutions talk as any talk by the other person of the disadvantages of a fossil fuel-based economy, the advantages of clean energy, the possibility of transitioning to clean energy, or the intention to act in a way that promotes the transition to clean energy. And I'm using the phrase clean energy here as a kind of shorthand. What I really mean is any steps towards solving climate change, which could include other things like regenerative agriculture, urban forestry, a plant-based diet, and so forth. What this means is that we want to facilitate the other person talking about reasons or methods for solving climate change or for implementing what we think of as climate solutions, even if the other person is not thinking of that as a climate solution. For example, someone might support renewable energy because it's cheaper than using fossil fuels. We don't need the other person to be committed to solving climate change if they're helping to implement climate solutions for their own reasons. Remember that we're trying to get in touch with other people's motivations and not our own. The theory here in evoking change talk is that talking about change tends to precede and lead to change. So if we can get people talking about climate solutions, we're doing the work of leading them 
towards implementing those solutions. Okay, I, I've said a lot again, so I'm gonna stop one more time and uh, take uh, questions that you might have at this point. Any uh, questions? John, oh, yes. there, yeah, there are a couple of questions um, in the Q&A. First, just going back to what we were talking about earlier, Gwen is wondering about the distinction between appreciation and gratitude. <laughs> I've wondered about that myself. <laughs> you know, Mark told me that his original phrase was respect, admiration, and gratitude. But um, over the years of telephone, playing telephone in CCL, it got morphed into respect, appreciation, and gratitude. <laughs> um, it's a little bit redundant. I think appreciation and gratitude are kind of the same thing. Uh, but this is what we say in CCL. We're kind of emphasizing the appreciation and the gratitude by saying it in two different ways. Okay, thanks. And then um, a question about how does this not get us rolled over like a tank by those who do not have respect, admiration, and gratitude? This is the second time this question has come up. So having a respectful attitude doesn't mean that we, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that we behave in a passive manner. Uh, think about Mahatma Gandhi. Think about Martin Luther King. Both Both of these people led massive and very effective social and political movements that were based in love. King and Gandhi taught their followers to love their opponents. And Gandhi overthrew the British government. Amazing, right? And King succeeded in getting civil rights legislation passed. So having respect, having love for the people who are opposing you doesn't mean that you have to lie down and and do what they say, right? Those two things are not the same. So think of King and Gandhi as a role model if you're wondering how uh, an attitude of respect or of love can be coupled with robust uh, political action. Okay, thanks. Um, and David has his hand up. Hi. Yeah, I just wanted to throw out something that I've tried in discussions with someone who is, you know, does not believe in climate change, um, which was to invite him to explore it with me. And in, in particular, he had asked me if I would look at a video that he'd seen of a climate denier, you know, saying a whole bunch of reasons why climate change isn't true. And um, what I found that was, was sort of interesting about, it, and I don't know if I was completely successful, is that in order to pull that off, I have to be completely willing myself to look at his evidence mm -hmm. and consider it the possibility that it may be true, because mm -hmm. otherwise I'm being disingenuous and then it, it, it isn't really going to work. Um, and... I certainly didn't completely convince him. I think I may have made some progress and I don't think I did it as well as I should have, but I, I just wonder what you think about that approach that let's, what if we both look at the evidence together? Yeah, I have a friend that I've sort of had some exchanges with that are similar to that. Uh, I have a real hard time doing that. You know, he'll send me <laughs> things to read and I'll read a little bit and I'm, you know, just kind of rolling my eyes and having a really hard time engaging with it, to be honest. Um, but what I will say is that uh, over a few years, I've been able to establish a friendship with this person. I met him at a CCL table. He approached a CCL table one day. And um, and we've been talking now for years back and forth. And 
he he recognized that climate change is a real thing, but he thinks that uh, you know liberals are hysterical about it and we don't need to do anything drastic about it. So he, he so anyway, what I have found with him is like there's a lot of stuff we probably are never going to agree on or we haven't ever we haven't been able to agree on <laughs> what I what I do with him and what he does with me actually is so interesting is we look for common ground. And I'm not sure uh, I'm not really sure how that process started. It's almost become a game between us where we'll be talking or kind of texting back and forth and one of us will identify some little piece of common ground and say, hey, that's common ground. And it's kind of like that's become the game. Like, can we find some common ground here, uh, rather than trying to convince the other one that they're wrong? But what is it that we actually agree on? And that that's been really um, nice, and and we've developed a, a friendship. And I I don't know if you heard Van Jones yesterday talk about the value of friendship. I yeah. thought that was really touching. If you haven't seen that, I recommend you go back and watch the recording of Van Jones yesterday because he talked about the importance of being friends with people that you don't agree with because. You don't know what's going to come out of those friendships. You you probably will find some common ground, and that's valuable. I'll take the next question there. Okay. Um, how many do you think you have? There's a question in the Q and A, and then George has his hand up. So. Okay. Well, we'll take those two questions, and then we can move on. Okay. So we'll go ahead, George. Okay. Thank you for talking to us. Um, I think one of the biggest issues we're looking at is how our brains actually work. Um, believe it or not, this is related to the subject. Um, we aren't as rational as we give ourselves credit to be, none of us. Some of us may be less so than others. Yep. And you can learn a lot from a book called um, The Righteous Mind. Yep. And so if you're looking at people, especially people who are a little bit more emotionally reactive and a little less cerebral than we are, understand that they're going to base their opinions and what they believe on, believe in, and how things feel to them, how things work out within their worldview. And um, then when they get information, they're going to view that information from how consistent it is with how they feel about things, how consistent it is with their worldview. Yeah. And then if you give them a solid argument, a watertight argument, they'll say, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the natural thing for us to do is start thinking about, well, yeah, but what if it's biased? You know, that person's liberal, you know, they're going to kind of twist things. And frankly, even myself, I consider myself pretty bright and well informed. I've looked at the mathematical models for climate change and for the economy, and they are pages of um, calculations that I can't do even with my college level calculus. So I have to admit that even I am basing a lot of what I believe I know on trust. Yeah, so when yeah. we're dealing with with people who disagree with us, understand that there may just be a matter of trust. Yeah. They have to trust us before they're going to believe what we say. Well, that's really important because we talk about the value of the trusted messenger. And I think a lot of the work that we're doing is in establishing these, these positive relationships, we hope to become trusted messengers. Uh, and I, the point you made about emotions coming before rational thought is something that I'm going to return to in a little bit. I think that's actually very important what you just said. So thank you for sharing all that. We'll come back to some of those ideas. Thank you. One more question here. Yes. Uh, so can you speak to any potential long-term disadvantages of getting people to act on climate through their own motivations? For example, if people are purely motivated by money, 
it doesn't solve the root problem of, you know, our disconnection to each other and the earth. Well, that's true. <laughs> um, of course, but the way I think about this is that we have to solve climate change first. Uh, that's why I'm part of CCL. I think that every, there are so many social problems we need to solve from my point of view. Um, and solving climate change gives us the time to address these other problems. And if we don't solve climate change, then it's, you know, it's all moot. So uh, it's true. If people are, you know, even the idea of a carbon price is what we're motivating people to adopt uh, clean energy for financial reasons, right? That's the whole point of a carbon price. Um, so we could do that. And then as, as uh, some people on the left would say, well, you still have capitalism and that's still going to cause all these problems. And uh, that may be true. But if we can solve uh, climate change, then we have time to continue discussing, you know, the nature of capitalism or whatever other problem we want to talk about. We have time to talk about it because we, we have solved this uh, enormous crisis that we're in. So um, first things first, in, in my point of view. Uh, and you're right, you know, so anyway, that's what I have to say about that. So why don't we, thank you for all your questions and comments. Let's, let's go on. Um, so, um, let's talk about reflective listening, uh, which, um, is the core skill of motivational interviewing. And, um, before we get into this, I want to remind you that after we've reviewed this skill, we'll be doing some practice with live coaching. And what I'll be doing is asking for volunteers to be spotlighted on the screen. One person will play a member of Congress and three other people will play CCLers in a lobby meeting. And we will role play a conversation in front of the whole group and I'll offer coaching and commentary as the conversation unfolds. So please be thinking about whether you'd like to be one of these volunteers. Um, we will do this more than once. Uh, we'll do it two or three times. We'll see what we, we have time for. Um, but we'll, we're doing well with time, so we can do it probably three times. And I particularly want to encourage those of you who are thinking maybe you'd be willing to do it, but you're not sure, to take the plunge and volunteer. Okay. So we can remember the elements of reflective listening through this acronym, ORS, which stands for Open-Ended Questions, affirmations, reflections, and summaries. These elements are not arranged in order of importance. The fact that the O comes first is just an accident that comes from using an acronym. The most important element here is actually the one that's listed third, reflections. So I'm going to start by talking about reflections, and then we'll come back to these other elements. Reflections are the heart of reflective listening. We can't say that we're practicing reflective listening if we are not offering reflections. I want to say that I, by the way, that I chose this photograph for this slide because when we interact with babies, we very naturally mirror them. We mirror their facial expressions. We imitate the sounds that they make. And this is a really fundamental way that human beings form close supportive, uh, even intimate relationships. MI practitioners are encouraged to offer one or two reflections for every question they ask. Let me say that again, one or two reflections 
for every question. A reflection is a restatement or paraphrase of what the other person has said in our own words in an empathetic and non-judgmental way. Reflective listening requires us to do two things. First, we have to listen for understanding. We have to ask ourselves to form a non-judgmental understanding of the other person, to learn where they're coming from, from their own point of view. This is an act of empathy, and this is step one. And then we share that understanding with the other person so they know we are following them. By responding to a statement with a reflection rather than a counter-argument, we avoid the adversarial style of debate that we're all so familiar with. Instead, we aim to create a conversation based on mutual trust and understanding. We aim to use accurate empathy in which our reflection so accurately reflects the other person's point of view that they say, yes, that's exactly right. If we don't get that reaction, that's okay because the other person will say, no, that's not exactly what I meant. And then they'll elaborate in a way that helps us understand. Reflections in this model should be offered as statements, not questions. That means the inflection of our voice stays flat and does not rise. For example, if someone says they think that natural gas is an important climate solution, the statement, you support the use of natural gas, is a simple reflection. And it just means, I hear you. I'm not judging you. I'm just listening. But when we let our the inflection of our voice rise and we turn that into a question, you support the use of natural gas? It sounds like, are you kidding me? It completely changes the meaning. Now, you might at some point want to ask questions about how the other person envisions using natural gas as a climate solution. And that's fine, but it wouldn't be a reflection. Part of the idea here is that if you just ask one question after another, you're merely conducting an interrogation, and that's pretty uncomfortable for the other person. There is no point at which you're simply expressing understanding then. To phrase a reflection as a statement emphasizes this simple point. I'm listening, I'm not judging you, and I understand what you're saying. Now we say that there are two main types of reflections, simple and complex. A simple reflection is a rather bare restatement of what the other person has said. It doesn't change it very much. A complex reflection, on the other hand, adds some new element to what the other person was saying. We can do that by using a metaphor, or we could name an emotion that was not stated by the speaker. We might name an underlying value or concern that was not overtly stated by the other person, or maybe we can reflect what we think is the implication of what they said. And there's one highly valuable form of complex reflection called a double-sided reflection. And I'll talk more about that in a minute. Complex reflections are best because they tend to deepen the conversation. Simple reflections can be most useful early in a conversation or early in a relationship when we're just getting to know the other person and so we don't stray too far from what they've actually said. As we get to know them better, we're more able to accurately reflect that things were to reflect things that were meant by the other person but not said out loud. Let's look at some examples. 
let's say somebody says this to you, as a friend of mine said to me, the best we can hope for is re reducing reliance on fossil fuels with renewable alternatives acting as a supplement. Otherwise, you're going to collapse the economy, and nobody wants that. So here's a simple reflection. You think the best we can do is to reduce fossil fuel use while supplementing that with renewable energy. It doesn't really add anything to what the other person said, but it does show that I'm listening and I'm not judging. And those are important reasons to offer a simple reflection. Now here's a complex reflection. It adds an emotional component. You are cautious about switching to renewables too quickly. The use of the term cautious acknowledges an emotion that the other person did not explicitly state. And then there's a metaphor. You want to test drive the new model before you let go of the old one. Now, this metaphor strays a little bit from what the other person said, but hopefully it's close enough that they can say yes to it. Maybe it's stretching too far, but they'll let me know if it is. Now, I think the value of making a reference to an emotion goes back to uh, what one of the uh, questioners brought up a moment ago, and I'm sorry, I have forgotten your name, but our apparently logical statements about climate policy are driven more by emotion than any of us would really like to admit, probably. But as this previous speaker said, we there's plenty of evidence that we respond to ideas emotionally first, and then we construct what sounds like a logical response. This is what's called motivated reasoning. And it's why arguing with people doesn't work. If you destroy someone's argument using logic, the other person will still feel emotionally compelled to stick with their original position. So they're likely to come up with a new rationale for sticking to the original idea. And then there's the metaphor here, which possibly offers the other person a familiar way to think about a transition, shifting from an old car, let's say, to a new car. We've all done that, and it's usually exciting to get that new car, even if we have some uncertainty about it. So this metaphor offers a frame of meaning that says, new models are exciting and cool. You might be a little cautious at first, but you're going to like this new thing in the end. Now, the double-sided reflection is a highly valuable form of complex reflection. Sometimes we can hear the other person expressing two sides of an idea. They're ambivalent. They're partly against climate action, partly for it. And we can pick up on that by returning it to them as a double-sided reflection, using the word but as a connecting word, and always ending with their support for climate action. You're afraid of hurting the economy, but... And that word but serves as a little bit of an eraser for what came before. And then we affirm their support for climate action, but you do see the value of reducing fossil fuel use and adding renewable energy. So we land on change talk or solutions talk, their support for climate action. This is a way to encourage them to say more about the value of reducing fossil fuel use and the value of increasing renewable energy. So let's move on to open-ended questions. Open-ended questions are questions that cannot be answered with a simple yes or no. They open the door to the other person's way of thinking and feeling 
and are critical to the process of evoking solutions talk. Yes or no questions bring conversations to a stopping point, but open-ended questions open the conversation to further exploration. Sometimes in our lobby meetings, we will ask yes or no questions. There's a place for asking when this bill comes to the floor, will you vote for it? But the heart of a lobby meeting or other climate conversation should incorporate mostly open-ended questions to keep the conversation flowing and to allow you to learn about the other person's way of thinking. CCL has been pretty good about encouraging open-ended questions. We even count the number of these in our lobby meetings. Although I think we should be counting the number of reflections offered in a meeting because reflections are the heart of reflective listening. Now, the way we craft open-ended questions can help us with evoking solutions talk, which is our overriding strategic goal. So let's look at some examples. Both of these are open-ended questions, but which is better designed to evoke solutions talk? Why do you support the continued use of fossil fuels or, or B, what do you like about renewable energy? Well, B, is the question that will evoke the person's positive thoughts about renewable energy, a climate solution. If you ask, why do you support the continued use of fossil fuels? They will tell you why. And you will be evoking talk that is contrary to solutions talk. In MI, that's called sustained talk because it is talk of sustaining the status quo. What about these two questions? What aspect of the Energy Innovation Act do you like the best? Or what is keeping you from supporting the Energy Innovation Act? You can imagine that the first question is more likely to evoke solutions talk. And the second question is likely to evoke what? The person's reasons for opposing the Energy Innovation Act. We're trying to put a highlighter to their support for the bill, not their opposition. So in MI, we would ask questions designed to evoke their support, even if that's only partial support. Now, I want to share one more thing about asking questions, and that's the importance of the attitude of being curious. Vince Shutt, the MI trainer in Canada, who's worked extensively with CCL, especially with CCL Canada, has said that an attitude of curiosity is essential to practicing motivational interviewing. To bring this home, I want to show you a short video clip from the television show, Ted Lasso. In this scene, Ted is losing a game of darts to the show's villain, a man named Rupert. And let's just see what happens. Mate, what do I need to win? Two triple twenties and a bullseye. <laughs> Good luck. Mm. You know, Rupert, Guys have underestimated me my entire life. And for years, I never understood why. It used to really bother me. But then one day, I was driving my little boy to school, and I saw this quote by Walt Whitman. It was painted on the wall there. It said, be curious, not judgmental. I like that. So I get back in my car, and I'm driving to work. And all of a sudden, it hits me. All them fellas that used to belittle me not a single one of them were curious. You know, they thought they had everything all figured out, and so they judged everything, and they judged everyone. And I realized that they're underestimating me. 
who I was had nothing to do with it. Because <laughs> if they were curious, they would ask questions. You know? Questions like, have you played a lot of darts, Ted? Which I would have answered, yes, sir. Every Sunday afternoon at a sports bar with my father from age 10 till I was 16 when he passed away. Barbecue sauce. So uh, I think the motto here, be curious, not judgmental, is a good expression of the attitude that we should have in doing motivational interviewing. Well, let's talk about affirmations. We can think of affirmations as words of praise or appreciation. So we open every lobby meeting with a thank you. We look for opportunities to write letters to newspapers that thank our members of Congress for things they've done. When our members of Congress take small steps forward on climate, we express appreciation. We also aim to affirm the other person's values, our common ground, and our common humanity. We are using affirmations to diffuse any sense that this is an adversarial relationship. The journalist Amanda Ripley once spoke to CCL on a national call, and I remember her saying, you have to affirm the goodness of the other person. When we can identify and acknowledge the other person's values as common ground, this can lower the heat in a conversation and bring two people into a friendly and respectful place. We are dedicated to lowering the temperature of the planet, and we can begin with affirmations that help to lower the temperature of a conversation. Finally, we have summaries. A summary is a review of the whole conversation or a big chunk of it. It's like gathering a bouquet of the important points of the conversation. A summary is useful at the end of a lobby meeting. It establishes that you've heard the member of Congress or staffer clearly, and you have a common understanding as the meeting comes to an end. And when you have your next lobby meeting, it's nice to begin with a summary of the last conversation, and that gives your meetings a sense of continuity. Now, so far, we've only talked about how to listen well to the other person. What about when you want to say something yourself? In MI, we are encouraged to first ask permission to share our ideas. This is a very polite thing to do. It indicates that we're willing to keep listening if the other person is not really done expressing themselves. Once the other person has given us permission to share, then we can share our ideas succinctly. Finally, we ask the other person what they think about what we've said, and we return to listening. I want to come back to this point about being succinct. I mention this because I think we all work so hard to educate ourselves about climate change and climate solutions that we naturally want to share everything we know with other people. But it is really easy to lose the other person if we start to give a speech. And if we give a speech, by the time we get to the end of it, we'll have no idea what they thought of the beginning. I think it's better to share a little bit and then ask what the other person thinks of that little bit. What the other person thinks is of utmost importance in an MI conversation. So here's a helpful acronym that I learned as a therapist. WAIT, which stands for, why am I talking? 
Don't just talk to fill space. And don't talk in order to share everything that you know. Be brief and to the point. Another thing that might help with this is to think of the form of Japanese poetry known as haiku. A haiku poem has 17 syllables. I think it would be a fun practice as you prepare for a lobby meeting to see if you can describe the key elements of a bill in 17 syllables. For example, about the Energy Innovation Act, you might say, rising carbon fee, carbon cash back to households, order adjustment. That's 17 syllables. Uh, but a haiku is technically supposed to refer to the changing of the seasons. So maybe we need to change it a little bit. Rising carbon fee, cash back and border tariff, leaves slip from the trees. Okay, I'm joking around a little bit. I do think this will be a fun exercise, <laughs> but uh, my point is, please consider the value of being brief and to the point when you're sharing an idea in your climate conversations. Okay, I've covered a lot of material. So let's take a moment to review. I talked about how connection matters. Connection, connection is not just a means to an end. The connections that we form are actual pieces of the livable world we are trying to create. We can reflect deeply on offering respect, appreciation, and gratitude to all people and we can be guided by this one rule. We aim to focus on solutions talk, on the motivations other, other people have to support various steps that we consider climate solutions. We talked about reflective listening using the acronym ORS, which stands for open-ended questions, affirmations, most importantly, reflections, and summaries. And this all means be curious, not judgmental, show appreciation, listen empathically, and reflect back what you hear without judgment, and summarize your conversations at the end. Finally, we talked about asking permission to share ideas, and then to share them succinctly before asking what the other person thinks of what we have shared. Okay, we'll go to some Q&A. And uh, then we will uh, we'll go to our practice, okay? So let me see what kind of questions there might be out there for any of this material I've covered so far. Okay. And, yeah. There are some questions in the Q&A that we can start with. Um, right. Let's see. Roger is asking, is just commenting, noticing that a lot of this reminds him of Stoicism, the Stoicism of Marcus Aurelius and others. Mm -hmm. Um, they understood connectedness, the need to get along with others, since we all share the same cosmos. And um, so his question is, how much could practicing some stoicism help with difficult discussions? You know, I don't know, but people keep saying to me, you should study stoicism. You sound like a stoic. <laughs> but I've, I've never studied stoicism, so I don't know. But um, <laughs> maybe if you know stoicism, you, you could do a presentation on stoicism and climate action. I invite you to do that. I'll come to your presentation because I, I would like to learn. Love it. <laughs> um, and Mandy asked, should you check in when you reflect, such as say, is that correct? 
Oh, yeah, you certainly can do that, especially if you're not sure. You know, you can certainly say, like, am I hearing you correctly? That That's perfectly fine. Um, you know, it's interesting because some models, uh, you know, like if you study nonviolent communication, for example, they encourage you to offer reflections always with a kind of a question like that. And in motivational interviewing, they say, offer the reflection as a statement. Uh, you know, I think either one is okay. It depends on if you're a little uncertain about the reflection. Uh, I would add that little question, like, am I hearing you right? Or is that correct? If I feel pretty certain that I've gotten it right, I just like put it out there just straight. And there's something that's really effective about just like offering a reflection as a simple statement without any hint of uncertainty on your part, but you got to feel pretty certain to do that. So I think either way is actually fine. Okay. And Bill is um, saying, summarizing last meetings, as in our last lobby meeting, the most recent lobby meeting you had with an office, sounds like an excellent practice. Should we do that before or after the appreciation? <laughs> <laughs> you know, so what I what I like to do if I'm a meeting lead is do that after the appreciation. You know, so we do you go in and you maybe do introductions and whatever, do an appreciation, like how much time do we have? You do all those beginning things. And then uh, somebody will say, so we were here six months ago and we talked about blah, 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 blah. And maybe there's something follow up. You know, sometimes there's follow up. Like we were here six months ago and you asked um, a question about, you know, such and such. And we've done some research and here's the answer. Now, maybe you would have given them an answer a long time ago, but maybe not. Maybe you're just bringing them that answer now. So that can be a nice time to do that. And then you can switch into like, today we want to ask you about blah. So I, that's the way I do it, but we don't have an official like CCL process for that. So I think it's an open question. You know, what's the best way to do that? Um, I, I, I advocate I am advocating for including this summary as part of our like meeting outline. You know, like if this is a, not your first meeting, then uh, summarize the last meeting. Maybe that's one of the first steps in a lobby meeting. So that's just my thought. Okay, good question, Bill. Um, and George is asking, how would you utilize these techniques in a staff only meeting compared to a face-to-face -face with a member of Congress? Yeah, that is a really um, good, question and hard one to answer. And I've kind of wrestled with that myself. Obviously, if you're with a member of Congress, you can say like, what do you think about this? And if you're with a staffer, you're stuck with saying like, well, what does your boss think about this? And my experience with staffers is they're often pretty cagey about answering that question. You know, they'll give you some vague answer. Um, so that's tricky. Uh, it's interesting too, talking to Vince Shutt in Canada, because what I learned is that in Canada, almost all of their meetings are with members of parliament directly. The, Vince was shocked when I said uh, only 25% at best of our meetings are with the members of Congress. He was shocked. It's like the reverse proportion in Canada. They almost always meet with a member of parliament. So it's tricky. Um, but I, what I've learned, at least when I was, have been able to meet with the same staffer repeatedly for a number of years, um, is that if we keep asking, well, what does the what does the member of Congress think about this? Now, the first time we ask that, he's going to give some cagey, vague answer. We come back and we ask it again, and we ask it again, and we keep asking this. What I found is he started preparing himself. You know, he would start to be ready for the question so he could answer it because he didn't like being in this uncomfortable position where we're asking this and he didn't have an answer for us. So, I'm mean, again that that depended on that particular relationship. So. We were able to develop a relationship with a staffer where he became more forthcoming over time. Um, 
And in fact, he started to do more and more homework for our meetings. Uh, and he would eventually come in with some difficult questions for us at the start of the meeting. He would say, like, I looked at this bill that you're recommending, and I think the member of Congress would be curious about this. And he'd have a tough question for us. But that was great, you know, because it just meant that he was really engaged. But it took time. You know, that's like the relationship building process that over time, he became more and more engaged. He became more forthcoming. And he also was able to maybe anticipate better. What did this boss think about this legislation? What kind of questions would the boss ask about the legislation? He would, he would share that with us. So I think that's an ongoing question for us. Like, how do we do that? I don't have a great answer. I keep wrestling with that myself. Thanks for bringing it up. Okay, have to share. Alex um, came up with a haiku for the Big Wires Act. Oh, love it. <laughs> More low cost, clean energy, birds on wires, let's fly. <laughs> <laughs> I well, love it. Got a nature yeah. reference in there. Yeah. Thank you, Alex. <laughs> and then Henry has a question. It's clear our member of co Congress wants forestry bills. We will acknowledge that early, maybe make it an appreciation and then move on to our current asks. Mm -hmm. So maybe more of a comment, but. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that, you know, I've heard Jen Tyler talk about this, um, that when she was working for a member of Congress in New York State um, and a CCL team came in and the CCL team said, uh, how can we help your office? How can we support you? And the CCL team began to promote the environmental uh, initiatives of that member of Congress, which were not directly climate related, they were more local, but it really caught the attention of the staff uh, and the member that the CCL group was willing to do that. Um, so, you know, we're often told that we get these uh, advice that comes down from our government affairs team, but we're also told that we need to be flexible. Each of us knows our own members of Congress the best. And so if you see an opportunity to work with your member of Congress on forestry, uh, I would certainly, you know, make a point of doing that. It doesn't mean that you don't also bring up the Big Wires Act or other things, but I would be sure to make a point that you would like to help with that. Um, my own member of Congress has an interest in um, self-driving cars. He's into that. He thinks it would be a big boon to the elderly. He has this vision that one day self-driving cars are going to pick up older homebound folks and drive them to the grocery store or to the doctor's appointment and then bring them home. Like he has this idea about that. <laughs> Nothing to do with climate change, right? But most automated vehicles are electric vehicles. You, you could make an automated vehicle that was had a gas, you know, for fuel, but like nobody's actually doing that. So these are electric cars. So we made a point of telling that office when we met them, this is a new member of Congress uh, where I live, that uh, we'd be happy to support that bill about automated vehicles <laughs> because it just sort of feels like a little place where we can work with him on promoting electric vehicles. <laughs> so it, it's a way to earn goodwill uh, and, and build trust with an office. So. Uh, you know, I think we always have to have that flexibility. Thanks for bringing that up. It's an interesting question. Mm -hmm. And that takes care of all the questions in the Q&A. Okay. Well, thank you. So, okay, we're going to go to our, um, our, our role plays now. So do I have some brave volunteers uh, to be part of a role play to try practicing this? 
Uh, we do have one, actually, the aforementioned Vince Shutt has offered. He is here, and he has offered to play a member of Congress if we need. Oh, so man. we've got one, and we've got, let's see, David and Alex have their hands raised. So I think we just need one more brave soul. All right, Henry. There we uh, go. Welcome to the workshop, Vince. What am I leading this for if you're here? I'll turn <laughs> the microphone over to you. I'll tell you that I, I learned uh, motivation. When Alex, I think, I'm sorry, John. Alex, I think you have to turn your video on maybe in order for John to be able to spotlight you. Thank you. All right, very good. Well, thank you for being my, my volunteers here. So Vince, you said you'd be a member of Congress. You can unmute yourselves, you all, you, uh, those of you who are now spotlighted. Do they have the power to unmute themselves? Um, I will ask them to unmute. We'll send the, okay, we're good. So Vince, you said you play a member of Congress? So do you want me to be uh, conservative, central, or left? Uh, just a little difficult. You know, you could be difficult in whichever way you want. Not too difficult, you know, but not too easy. So you could be someone <laughs> on the far left who's kind of skeptical of, we're going to be, we're going to talk about the Energy Innovation Act. So we're doing carbon pricing. So you could be left or right, whichever you want, but just, you know, you want to give this team a little trouble. Okay. Yeah. I, I'll be I'll be a uh, a more central kind of conservative then, if that's what they want to uh, practice against. Okay. All right, that sounds good. And so so we have a, a moderate conservative member of Congress here, and I got to tell you, Vince is from Canada, so he's like skewed towards like being really nice as a member of Congress in my experience. <laughs> like Canadians are nicer than Americans, so. Um, so you're going to have a really nice conservative um, member of Congress here. Not going to give you that much of a hard time. And so the other three of you, um, what I want you to do is you're going to be talking to this member of Congress about the Energy Innovation Act. And um, so I'm assuming that you, the three of you, feel comfortable enough to talk about the Energy Innovation Act. Um, so um, you want to think about uh, everything we've just talked about with motivational interviewing, but you also want to talk about sharing the floor with each other and, of course, with, with Vince, right? So, so try to make sure you're leaving space for each other to participate. And then let's see, we'll do this for, I don't know, well, we'll do it for five or 10 minutes until it feels like we come to a good stopping point, let's say. And for those of you who are watching, what I want you to do is to put into the chat uh, now the chat is just coming to hosts, is that right? But I, I'd like you to put in the chat anytime that you notice an element of motivational interviewing. You can just, uh, and so John has just put those elements into the chat that I want you to be looking for. Open-ended questions, affirmations, reflections, summaries, evoking solutions talk, asking permission to share, and sharing succinctly, okay? So look for those elements. And when you notice one of those elements, you can just put it in the chat that you've heard that, okay? Should we go ahead and just ask people to put it in the Q&A so everybody can see it? Yeah, if that works better. Yeah, if they can do that. Q &A, go ahead and put it in the Q&A then so that it's visible to all of you as you're labeling these elements, okay? So um, you CCLers could begin with uh, an imaginary appreciation, if you like. One of you could just invent something to appreciate the member for, and just and just go. 
and we'll just watch. And uh, if you need help, you know, ask for help. Uh, or if uh, you know, I may interrupt you and, and make a comment as we go. So you CCLers have the floor now. So Congressman Schutt, uh, I want to start by just thanking you for taking the time to meet with us. I know you have a tremendously busy schedule and uh, we really appreciate uh, your taking this time. Oh yeah, and uh, just so it's it is shot, but thank you. Yeah, happy to uh, to meet with you. So, what can I do for you today? Oh, we want to start with an appreciation of all your work on forest. I mean, even your background reflects that on you. And um, forests are a necessary part of of what we need in our climate in the future. So, yeah, it's uh, there's I, I've long been passionate about the. Uh, just forested areas. Uh, this picture is actually taken um, uh, uh, just a few miles from my uh, my childhood home, um, and so uh, uh, definitely, you know, something very very important to me, um, which is you know uh, how are we managing our, our forests? Yeah, it's really great, David and and Henry. Did you want to introduce yourselves? Sure. Uh, my name is David Emberling. I live in Newtown, Connecticut. I've been a volunteer with CCL for about six or seven years now. Um, obviously very concerned about the environment and climate change. And uh, I live in a somewhat forested area too. So I share your appreciation for that. Six years, good time. I'm Henry Slack. I am a mechanical engineer by training. And uh, <laughs> I'll live in your district and appreciate you for that. Go ahead, Alex. Oh, thank you. And um, I am Alex Eminette. My husband just returned from a trip where he may have been exposed to COVID, hence my mask. I'm really wishing I didn't have to wear my mask, but we're, we're playing it really safe. And um, I just wanted to let you know, I love forests and we plant a lot of trees on our property. Um, I'm all in favor of the million trees idea. But we're actually going to talk to you mostly about the Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividend Act that offers a carbon cash back. I know we've spoken to you before. Uh, do you want to want to tell us what you remember from our previous talk, or would you want us to feed you more information? Um, yeah, so uh, um, yeah, I do remember uh, parts of that. We, we talked about that, um, I think, the last time you came to visit. Uh, uh, we talked, um, that was, must have been like a year or so ago, yeah? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, um, and uh, I mean, this bill wasn't even there yet. You were just talking about uh, like um, carbon tax and, uh, um, you know, like uh, different ways to, yeah. So you uh, would love the summary. Yes, please uh, fill me in again. David, you want to show that? Who's going to go? Um, Alex, you want to go next? Or? I was I was going to say, David, he gives a really good summary of the um, Energy Innovation Act. So the idea is very simple, and it's, it's actually similar to a plan that's already in existence in Alaska. I don't know. Are, are you familiar with what Alaska does with their oil royalties? I, I yes, I'm uh, they there's a cash back um, mm -hmm. uh, uh, concept where the um, so like the um 
there's a lot of drilling, obviously, that we're, you know, uh, trying to, like, improve the amount of oil uh, that is, like, domestically produced instead of, um, you know, getting our oil from, you know, uh, more unstable countries, you know, Middle East, things like that. And uh, so there's, uh, there's, I mean, there, I think it's actually a quite substantial dividend actually goes to um, Alaska state residents, uh, is my understanding. I think yeah. you're right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, go ahead, Alice. I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say you're, I think you're absolutely correct. Um, and so would you like us to give you a little summary of the Energy Innovation Act? It's kind of similar to what you've described. I, yeah, I'm uh, so I've got um, uh, so I haven't read the whole bill myself. Um, one of my staff was um, uh, uh, John, who's actually here, is is uh, on on the staff, and um, uh, uh, so he gave me a bit of an executive summary of it. And uh, so, um, but yeah, if you want to tell me your points of view, I'm happy to listen. I could. Well, Child editorless Henry, did you want to? I'd be happy to. Uh, thanks for asking. the The key thing is this places a uh, a fee on fossil fuels at the source, which will tend to make them more expensive, which means we will use less of them. But we collect all this money and we give the cash back to every um, household in the U.S. Yeah. Consequently. You know, you get a share and you get a share and I feel like Oprah Winfrey, but uh, you, you get to um, the poorest among us get the uh, money to pay for increased cost. So they end up ahead, whereas the Taylor Swifts flying their private jet will be paying more for private jet fuel. And you know what? They can afford it. Yeah, the um, I, I think I read about that. My concern that I had with this is um, are we actually, because certainly there's going to be like some amount of like processing that there's a, a, a percentage that's going to be lost. And I imagine it must be uh, quite substantial that, you know, when um, we, we come up with a, a new carbon tax, right? And that carbon tax is going to be, um, you know, we're collecting all this money and how much are we actually giving back? Um, you know, is it, is it, you know, 20%, 30%, like what, is, what are we actually getting back? And, you know, are we going to actually keep giving that back? You know, that's kind of what I'm thinking is that like how, you know, uh, you know, legit actually is that, you know? Yeah. The results of a study. That's a terrific point, Congressman. And I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up um, because we have looked at this. Uh, the good news is, this is the most efficient tax in terms of return to the public that practically has never been done. I think the estimates, I don't know the exact numbers and we can certainly get back to you on that, but I think the estimates are that something like two or 3% at the most of the money would get eaten up by the administrative costs of you know, maintain, you know, administering the whole thing and collecting the money and giving it back to the citizens. It's very, very efficient, um, as is the Alaska royalty program. And I think uh, Social Security is somewhat similar to that. I was going to jump in because this has been about 10 minutes. I think this has been like a really lovely conversation to listen to. 
Um, in terms of like, is there a sense of discord here? No, I don't sense any discord here at all. And I'm curious about like the four of you doing this. How does this conversation feel to the four of you? Well, I'll say part of the challenge is not knowing who's going to go next. Yeah. In yeah. Yeah. Team meetings, we say, ah, this is yeah, appreciation. You don't, a, is asked. You, don't have, you don't have a meeting lead and you don't have a meeting plan, but you're doing great. Like the three of you are doing a wonderful job sharing the floor with each other, I think. Um, I have not really heard a reflection in particular. Someone put that in the in a chat, like, where's the reflection? But I think you've done a lovely job just watching, um, you know, with being brief, with asking permission, uh, showing appreciation. But what has it felt like to you? What's it been like for you, Vince, talking to these these uh, CCLers? What's that feeling been like for you? Um, I did feel the um the openness. I never felt like a, a non-judgmental vibe. Um, I felt like the um the appreciation of forestry and like uh like after I kind of talked about why it was important to me, everybody kind of, you know, kind of rung in with that. So that felt good. Um after I kind of pointed out my concern about the administrative costs, um, you know, I would have liked um that would have, I think, maybe been a good opportunity for me to hear like my words reflected back that like I was concerned about that and to feel that like that that was a legitimate concern and you know maybe after that like you know what is a percentage of of administrative loss um that uh that I thought would be a reasonable like if I had to choose what would be the amount that I would kind of want to shoot for because whatever it actually turns out to be then you know um I, I think David, you're about to fall into a trap of of the uh, the writing reflex, maybe. Um, you know, with uh, um, telling me, "Hey, you don't have to worry about it because it's low." But I, it, whatever number you give me is always probably going to be too high for me. <laughs> so yeah, we get a little bit into the weeds in that moment, which is one reason I I thought I'd stop you because it's actually written into the bill, but I didn't know if you all would know that. <laughs> anyway. Any other comments uh, from the four of you before we go to another group of uh, volunteers here about what this process was like for you? Yeah, Alex. Um, so I was trying to be the kind of meeting lead by saying, David, would you or Henry, would you like to do? And um, just at that moment where um, uh, Vince brought up, you know, the percentage going back to people. I was about to say, so it sounds like your concern is, you know, kind of a reflection. Yes. Um, but yeah. um, David kind of jumped in. So there, the meeting lead is, I think it's really important to have a meeting lead and kind of a script, which is what I've done with our lobby meeting. I wrote out who's going to go in what order so that we're sort of following that and nobody steps on each other's toes to the extent that we can. The other thing too is if you know this member of Congress, you can try to anticipate ahead of time what their concerns might be. Mm -hmm. So you can also practice what a reflection might look like. Right? Yeah. Yep. Um, if you know, like they might be concerned about administrative costs, you might have had something prepared to say at that point. Yeah, Henry. Or or even just to say, uh, have a team member who's focused on looking for opportunities to reflect. And yeah. They yes. Do the, the yeah, that's true. Job. You could have a reflector. It could be like the role. It could be a role in the meeting. Your reflector. Yeah, that's right. an interesting idea. Yeah. 
All right. Well, big round of applause to the four of you. Thank you so much for being brave, coming forward. It was fun. Thank you, Vince. Um, Vince is really the, um, I just want to say, is really the one who knows more than anybody, I think, uh, using motivational interviewing in the climate space. So I learned this as a counseling tool. But Vince has always uh, been studying motivational interviewing for use in the climate space. So he is uh, he's really the expert. I've learned so much from, from you, Vince. So thanks for being here and thanks for all of your teaching over the years. So do I have um, a few more volunteers? We'll try this again. Who else would like to come up and, and try this? And uh, okay, all right, Matt. So Matt, your job is to be, uh, you know, not the most difficult member of Congress, but you know, to be somewhat difficult, right? You wanna give some challenge. You can be either on the left or the right you know, you take your pick. It doesn't matter. You can be difficult from either from either side of the aisle. And um, so you three CCLers, again, you know, your job is to uh, talk to Congressman uh, Myers here about uh, the Energy Innovation Act and to use those uh, reflective listening skills. John, if you could put those elements again into the chat, um, the elements for, for people to watch for if you're there, open-ended questions, affirmations, reflections, summaries, evoking solutions talk, asking permission to share and sharing succinctly. Thank you, John. So those are the elements that you three CCLers will be looking to practice. I wanna encourage you specifically to look for an, uh, an opportunity to offer a reflection. You can see it's kind of easy to let the conversation go by and not offer a reflection. It's so easy to do that. So do your best to find a moment uh, to offer a, a reflection. And you folks who are watching, again, if you would put in the chat what you observe, which of those elements you're observing. So um, I'll just give the floor to the four of you and you can you can begin your, your brief lobby meeting here. Hello, um, Senator Myers. Thank you so much for, for meeting with us today. Uh, I wanted to talk to you, uh, we, we wanted to talk to you a little bit about, about solutions um, that we were thinking about. And um, I, as you know, uh, in our state, Washington State, uh, we've passed the Climate Commitment Act, which has a lot of features of uh, carbon pricing and then a lot of government programs that use the funds collected. And I was, I was wondering if you have any ideas of if you had been able to design the climate, the climate, um, legislation in our state, are there any features that you would have done a little bit differently from the Climate Commitment Act that we have? Yeah, um, thanks for meeting with me, you all. It's great to see constituents uh, at any time. Um, I assume we're all constituents, I hope. Yes. Um, um, yeah, so, I mean, I think that, you know, what Citizens Climate Lobby does is fine, but to be honest, um, I would like to see a way more aggressive push on climate change, um, you know, enough of the being the nice guy. It's time that we have some mandates out there about what is going to happen. We need to stop fossil fuel tomorrow. We need to do all kinds of things. And I appreciate that um, that you know your your program is meant to bring on the other side, and that it's meant to be uh, you know a great way to start conversations and all that sort of thing. But time's up. No more conversations. We just have to do it. So it sounds like you're all 100% on board for 
for doing everything possible to slow down climate change. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we've been talking about this since I was in college 35 years ago. Um, where are we? You know? We're really interested in um, plans that you have on your docket that you feel like are important towards climate change. Uh, sure. I mean, how long do you have? <laughs> as long as you want. Um, Four or five all minutes. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, I mean, if I ran the zoo, um, as Dr. <laughs> Seuss would say, I would um, I would start by mandating um, through the federal government a, a nationwide grid, and I would um, completely reform the way we pay our utilities. They're all being paid by, um, you know, building big, expensive stuff that isn't efficient. Um, that's no good. It doesn't serve our ends. It doesn't serve their ends. I, I think there's, you know, I. Like I said before, I, I know and I appreciate that CCL tries to be nice to people. And one way we could, I guess, is you can still let the utilities make more money than anybody else in the whole wide world, but do it in a way that's aligned with our goals. So that would, I, I guess that would be my first thing. Um, and then I would, um, I would say uh, I want to see um, the phase out of, uh, of internal combustion engines much faster than any state has so far proposed. Um, and, um, I would say that I want to see, um, robust climate, uh, diplomacy across the world, meaning we need to get out there, get the big polluters on our side and get the, the developing countries, a lot of money to, um, bring them along in the way that, uh, needs to happen for the world. And we need to pay for all this in a really simple way, tax the 1% heavily. Well, Senator Myers, just listening to you um, talk about the climate solutions that you're passionate about is like bringing chills to all of us um, and really <laughs> neat to hear. Uh, it sounds like you're also feeling a little bit of a pressure cooker of time and the, and the nervousness of wanting to get this done quickly. Absolutely. You got it. Um, and I guess, well, so what I would want to hear from you all is um, why is CCO going so slow? What's the... What's the holdup? <laughs> uh, Gwen, do you want to take it? Yeah. So uh, it sounds to me like you, you, you don't want to like diplomacy would be like sometimes if it fits into your plan, you would include it. But you have very definite plans that will get us to where we want to be faster. And I think that um, what we're doing at CCL is we are trying to bring along people and propose a solution that would actually meet the Paris goals. And uh, we know that our solution isn't everything. So we are very, very open and excited about additional solutions such as the ones that you proposed today. In addition to what Glenn, Gwen said too, I think it's um, giving the citizens a chance to speak for themselves to, directly to you know, members of Congress like yourself and having that voice um, and making sure that the constituents' voice is heard in Congress. Okay, I'm going to stop you here right now. This this is amazing. What an amazing conversation, <laughs> <laughs> Matt. I think you stunned all of us. <laughs> <laughs> what what a challenge that was for the CCL team. What was that like for you, three CCLers there, getting this? Uh, you know, this person who wanted to go so much faster than CCL. It was marvelous. It felt like, like a wonderful walk in the park. And like, it was just 
just such a pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> that was a nice challenge, Matt. I appreciate that you that you threw that out there at everybody. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I do sometimes wonder, like, what, what, you know, I live in North Carolina. This isn't going to happen to us, but, um, but what would I do, you know, if a, if a member of Congress came at me with a much more aggressive um, outlook than what we're putting forth, you know? I want to say, Laurel, I really appreciated you had a reflection in there that I thought was just really, uh, really great. I don't remember the exact words that you spoke now, but it was like. You know, you're giving us chills and your passion for solving climate change. I, I just love that. It was a, it was an affirmation and a reflection, and it was just beautiful. I thought I really loved that moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I also felt, I mean, putting myself in your shoes, I felt a little anxious. Like I wasn't sure, like what I would do with this very aggressive, uh, you know, <laughs> climate solver over here. We wanted to like fossil fuel use tomorrow. Um, I John, that, yes. Oh, I'm sorry to interrupt, but we do have a question. Uh, Ronald's got his hand raised. Oh, okay. Yeah, let's hear the question. Yes, Ron. Ron. Yeah, um, that, that was a fabulous exchange. Congratulations to all of you. Um, the response that I might have had, because we're in somewhat of a similar situation with a climate champion, um, uh, several climate champions from Hawaii, um, would be, uh, Congressman, can you please tell us um, how you would rate the viability of your aggressive uh, climate policies in the current political situation? Yeah. That throws some cold water on it. <laughs> yeah, it's like, how do you ask that question? Like, what would that have been like for you, Matt, if someone had asked that question of you? What do you think that would have felt like to you? Um. Well, I mean, I was role-playing, so I'd have probably <laughs> come up with something like, uh, I imagine I would have said, um, as you often hear, um, the, the the most progressive in our country say, you know, we're we're being too timid. We need to be much more aggressive, and that will lead to electoral victory. You know, in, next year is an election year. We got to get out ahead of this, win a landslide, and be able to do what we need to do. You know, and I don't personally think that that would actually happen, but I do think that there are people who believe that. Yeah, there are certainly people who believe that, right? So you you played a good um, person on the left who can create some trouble for CCL. <laughs> and Alex commented that perhaps asked Congressman Mayers what he thinks it would take to get all the rest of his colleagues to agree with him. Uh, that's a good one. That's an interesting question. Yeah. And I see Carl's got his hand raised. And I also have a question, another question from a little bit earlier in the Q&A. So. Carl's question and then another question, and then we're going to do one more exercise. So go ahead, Carl. Yeah, uh, again, I want to second fantastic work, all four of you. Uh, the thought that occurred to me if I'd been the CCLer in the meeting is uh, to expand on the, on the thinking by saying something like, well, since you've been following CCL for a while, Senator, you know that we were all just carbon fee and dividend for many years, and yet now we've expanded our portfolio policy uh, solution areas. Um, do you have any thoughts about how CCL going forward could actually help you realize your vision? Yeah. And 
Right. Also. Sort of like Jen Tyler's example, right? Of saying, how can we help you, right? How can we work with you on this? Yeah. Okay. So then the question, this is a more general question about this, but um, Ginger's asking, if you reflect back their ob objections or reservations about what you're discussing about the policy, then are you risking focusing on, you know, the negative um, instead of it not being using evoking the solutions talk? Yeah, I mean, I think that is a risk. And so that's where a double-sided reflection might come in. So, you know, in this case, a double-sided reflection might be something like, you know, I, I hear that you think that we're moving too slowly, but I also hear that um, you do so. I don't I don't know if this is true. Maybe if we've done some work questioning and learning about this member of Congress, but but I, you know, I, I understand that you think we're going too slowly, but I get that you also are completely with us. Let's say you're completely with us in the effort to solve climate change. Right. So you're coming back to this as common ground, you're with us. I don't know. We didn't get a sense of what does this member of Congress think about carbon pricing? That didn't really, that wasn't clear. You know, he said he wanted mandates. Well, what does he think about carbon pricing? We we didn't get that. So, uh, I mean, maybe, maybe he supports carbon pricing. Maybe he doesn't. Maybe he thinks that's too slow or too, too, too much relying on a capitalist forces. Maybe this is a really far left member of Congress. Um, so we don't know that. But that's, you could use that double-sided reflection to say, we hear this, we hear you think that we're moving too slowly, but, and then maybe there's some place of common ground that could be emphasized there. So, uh, and in this case, um, you know, this person is a climate champion, but they're not on board exactly with our approach. So, you know, I think we want to say yay for this person, they're a climate champion. We want to support them. And, um, and see where we can work with them. You know, where do we have common ground, I would think. Okay, I wanna give you all a big round of applause for our four volunteers, our four brave volunteers. Thank you so much, that was wonderful. And I wanna give all of you a chance to practice. So um, we're gonna to go to breakout rooms now of uh, five, five to six people. So again, and you'll need to take a minute to sort out what roles you're gonna play. But what I'm saying, what I wanna suggest is you have one person is a member of Congress, and then we have three CCLers in a lobby meeting, and then the fifth or maybe the sixth person uh, are gonna be observers. And then we'll give you like a one minute notice so that the observers can report like, what did you see? Um, and it'll be the same conversation. We'll talk about the Energy Innovation Act. Okay, so you all get a chance to practice. Let's see, do we have everybody back? Um, so, um, any, any comments about that experience? We, we have time for just a, maybe a few comments. Yeah, go ahead, Barbara. Well, one thing we stumbled across was I was the Congress member and somehow the conversation got to where there was like, they were giving me facts and I was starting to feel like I was stupid or ill-informed for not knowing as much or more than they did. So we realized we don't want to make our members of Congress feel stupid or uninformed. Very good observation. Yeah, very good observation. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, David, how about you? I think I right now I see I see five hands. And I think that's all we'll do. We'll just take five five comments and please be brief because we're getting short on time now. Sure. Well, our pretend congresswoman was a 
Trump MAGA Republican climate denier quite vehement. And <laughs> I found myself stumbling, you know, and really I was desperately looking for like a, an affirmation or a reflection or, you know, something. But yeah, uh, it was tough to try yeah. to turn the conversation to, to any common ground or anything like that. I, I worked on jobs a little bit, but I don't know how far I got with that. Well, that's a particularly difficult challenge. So, um, you know, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, sometimes no matter how good your skills are, it's going to be really tough. And and talking to someone like that's going to be tough, I think. Uh, Bill, how about you? Yeah, um, we had a moderate conservative um, congressperson. Uh, she was very good at uh, offering us openings for us to do reflections and summaries and such. So the consensus, though, was for the last two hours is drinking from a fire hose of really, really useful information. Um, two or three of us are going to be in meetings this next week. And so this practice, just to get our feet wet, was very good. So I appreciated that. Wonderful. How about you, Henry? Hey, um, I stopped us where I think they missed a chance for an affirmation where I said, as the congressman, uh, you know, I'm just, you know, we need to keep taxes as low as possible. And I wanted them to, to speak up and say, we agree with you. And that we could then, you know, building that common ground would have been, I think, a, a stronger move than uh, right. saying, well, it's not a tax, it's a fee. Right. <laughs> so this brings to mind, Henry, the value of uh, doing a role play like this before a lobby meeting, because when you're playing the member of Congress, then you can see how it feels to be addressed by the CCL team and whether that feels, does it feel good or you feel like you're being kind of attacked a little bit. And that's really valuable feedback. So I encourage you all to do these kind of role plays um, as you prepare for lobby meetings. George, in your video, at least on my screen, is upside down somehow, but go ahead. You're defying gravity there. And muted. And you're muted. There you go. How about now? Can you hear me? Yep. Okay. So I thought our group did a good job of uh, um, an affirmation and appreciation. Um, we had a congressman who definitely did not buy into the climate change. And I think we did a pretty good job of pivoting to solutions. Um, we didn't quite get the point of getting them on board with agreeing to disagree, but here's some common ground solutions we could do. That'd be, for instance, regenerative farming or something else that'd be of value to both of us. But I think overall, we did a good job. Very good, thank you. And Alex, are you, I'm gonna, you're gonna be the last comment I'm gonna take just in the interest of time. Okay, so Bill Bray, Carl Band, Cheryl Arnitz, and Howard Sherman were aces. They were fantastic. They did everything. It was a textbook perfect case. So I think everybody should um, watch this recording and see what they did. I, I It was like a dream team. <laughs> well, I think all of you were a dream team. Okay, I'm, I just have a few more little things to say and I'll, I'll let you all go. Um, let me share my screen one more time. <clears throat> so let's just review one more time what we've covered today. Uh, we talked in the beginning about the importance of connection. And I want to just say one more time that I think every connection we make 
is a piece of the livable world we are trying to create. So don't think of these connections as just a means to an end. Every connection is an end in itself. And we talked about respect, appreciation, and gratitude extended universally to all people. I think that if we reflect on this idea and sincerely aspire to make our best effort to do this, to offer this to all people, we will be well guided in all of our climate interactions. We talked about evoking solutions talk. Do what you can to get other people talking about solving climate change. Talking about climate solutions is a step towards enacting them. And finally, we talked about reflecting what we hear people say with empathy and without judgment. This is the basic skill of reflective listening, which is the heart of motivational interviewing. And these are my parents, Bill and Marie Sabin. My dad was Jewish and not very religious. My mom was Catholic and very religious. She was a biblical scholar, in fact, and I learned this Jewish concept from my Catholic mom, tikkun olam, which means in Hebrew to repair the world. The idea is that the world as we perceive it seems to have been shattered into thousands of pieces. And our work, the work of a human being, is to put the pieces back together. I think that's our climate work, to put the pieces back together. Motivational interviewing is just one way to have respectful conversations in the course of our climate work, to find connection in the midst of our work. I think that tikkun olam means to see that we are not separate from each other, and the fate of the coral reefs is our own fate. Everything is connected, and we are working to create a world where we all recognize this fact so we can recognize in each other our own life. Author and parenting expert L.R. Nost said, do not be dismayed by the brokenness of the world. All things break and all things can be mended, not with time as they say, but with intention. So go, love intentionally, extravagantly, unconditionally. The broken world waits in darkness for the light that is you. Thank you so much for being here today. It is always an inspiration and a joy to be around a group of CCLers. Please feel free to reach out to me if you have any questions. My email address is here, john.sabin at citizensclimate.org and consider joining the Effective Communication Action Team. My hope is that we will have monthly opportunities for people to gather and practice communication skills together in the year ahead. Have a wonderful rest of your day, everybody. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Citizens Climate Lobby's training program. You can tune into more episodes anywhere podcasts are available. Inspired by what you heard today? Join Citizens Climate Lobby to advocate for bipartisan climate solutions. Go to community.citizensclimate.org to find more trainings, resources, your local chapter, national action teams, discussion forums, and more. Be sure to like our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Citizens Climate. We also invite all of our listeners to subscribe to our YouTube channel for more inspiration. Like what you hear? Recommend us to your friends and make sure to give us a five-star rating. It helps us show up on other listeners' feeds. 
Feel free to pass on any suggestions for future episodes in the comments as well. And together, we are creating the political will for a livable world.